Welcome to Recovery Coast to Coast, broadcasting from Clear Channel Studios in Seattle, Washington, carried live on Fox Radio 850 KHHO in Tacoma, Washington, and carried nationally in streaming audio at www.recoverycoasttocoast.org. Two hours of interviews and features, plus questions and comments about this one-day-at-a-time adventure in personal recovery as we share experience, strength, and hope with others so that they may recover from alcohol and other drug and behavioral addictions. And now, Recovery Coast to Coast is on the air. Here's your host, Neil Scott. Welcome back once again to Recovery Coast to Coast, the only program in America on the air five nights a week, two hours a night, talking about addiction with a focus on recovery. Now, joining me in this segment is noted addiction specialist, Dr. Kevin McCauley. He's been on the front lines of addiction treatment for nearly 20 years. He served as a Navy flight surgeon, and he has a rather interesting story. Dr. McCauley became addicted to opioids following a surgical procedure, and instead of being treated, he was, well, he was thrown in jail. He was thrown in the Marine Corps jail and placed in solitary confinement and then eventually sent to the U.S. Army's maximum security prison in Leavenworth. Um, then he was eventually released, and the Navy wound up paying for his treatment, and he is continuing in long-term recovery. He lectures extensively all around the country on the neuroscience of addiction and recovery management. He's going to be in Seattle March 16th, 7 o'clock, at a free presentation at Seattle Public Library. It's sponsored by the Northbound Treatment Services, co-sponsored by Changes Parent Support Network. Tickets, by the way, are free and they can be reserved through brownpapertickets.com. His topic is going to be why addiction is a disease and why there's hope. Welcome to Recovery Coast to Coast, Kevin. Thank you very much, Neil. I appreciate the invitation to come on your show. That snapshot of, of your story, your descent into addiction, seemed rather harsh. Addiction to opioids leading to solitary confinement in a U.S. prison and then being sent to Leavenworth. Can you fill in a few blanks there? Well, you know, uh, I think the thing I should probably start out with first is the reason that they did that was that I was guilty. <laughs> and so uh, Guil- guilty, use of drugs in the mili- guilty of using drugs in the military, they, they react pretty predictably and, you know, pretty much by the book. Wow. But I've never I've never faulted them for anything uh, about that. You know, I was the one who, who became addicted and, and the behaviors, you know, that uh, that came from that were against the Uniform Code of Military Justice. Mm-hmm. They... I think I was one of the first of this sort of new generation of people who were exposed to opioids during a surgery and discovered that they were amazing. In other words, I was a what we would call a hyper-euphoric responder. And there are certain people who do that, and they have a very high likelihood of going on to develop opioid use disorder, which I did. And as a physician, I, you know, you know, was able to accelerate quite quickly. Easy access. And, yes, easy access. And, uh, and I, you know, I called the medical board of California. I reached out to a few people, but because I was in the military, no one really knew what to do. And so by the time, you know, uh, you know, I tried to handle it myself. And by the time it caught up with me, in other words, they caught me, there really wasn't a whole lot anyone could do. And no one was nasty about it. No one was mean. They just said, well, you know, we just can't have our officers act this way. And then since I was with the Marine Corps, that that's, you know, even more, uh, uh, yeah. you know, important. Not that it isn't important with the Navy, but uh, but you know they have to send a message to their to their troops that hey we don't let officers do this this is this is how we react. So I mean I've never you know faulted them for that. Uh, in the military, you have to kind of take care of the the bad stuff first, and then you know whatever after that you know they'll do. 
And so first I went to Leavenworth and then they paid for my treatment and I will always be forever grateful for that. I think a big reason that I'm sober today is that I had the benefit of a good dose of treatment, you know, thanks to the military. So it's it's just one of those one of those sad things, you know, there's not really sometimes your hands are tied and I see this in families, I see it in organizations, I see see it in the military. It's just like, well, this is really sad, but you know, this is the way it's got to work out. So, in the long run, everything worked out just fine. What was the time frame between the time that you had that surgery and the time that you wound up being incarcerated? Oh, oh, probably less than 3 years. I mean, it it happened very quickly. It took off very quickly. Uh, and then, and then, you know, I mean, I was, you know, most addicts have a hard time kind of hiding it or maybe they don't, but I did. Uh, and it was really obvious and it it was just, you know, I put a lot of people in some really difficult positions and I, you know, I, I make amends to all of that, but it's, uh, you know, like I said, it was just, it was more of a sad case. No one was really terribly angry about it. They were just, you know, kind of, oh, well. And now, you know, as I understand, the, the, the reaction is much, much more sophisticated in the military to this kind of thing. They, they're much more likely to get people treatment. There's a, an expansion, I think, of the understanding that this is a health problem. Addiction specialist Dr. Kevin McCauley is joining us tonight on Recovery Coast to Coast. You know, there's no doubt in my mind that addiction is a treatable disease from which people can and do recover. Talk about society's continuous denial to accept the fact that it is a disease. Wow, that's a big question. So I'll just go to what I think is the most interesting answer. You know, the way I conceive of addiction is is on two levels. One is it's essentially a disorder in the brain's pleasure system. So essentially the, the capacity that we use to create a pleasurable experience, that's realized in the brain and it can break. And it does in addiction. But that then leads to something I think much more scary, and that is a problem in making choices. And not only a problem in the impairment in decision-making, but an impairment in insight on the part of that person that their decision-making is in fact impaired. That's a very big statement. The idea that the pleasure system and the free will or volition system of the brain is is disordered, that, that's a big, big, big thing, especially for Americans. Now, everybody believes in free Everybody believes in liberty, but we tend to almost fetishize these things in the United States. So you have to ask yourself, what if there could be a disease of liberty, a disease of freedom? How would the, the people who were, you know, of that nation so conceived in the dedication to, you know, things like liberty and freedom, how would they react? And I think we've reacted, well, fairly predictably. We've incarcerated certain groups of addicts by the hundreds of thousands. And I think that that's, that's one of the things that, that, that I take away, away from all this is that we've really got a, a very big insult to the idea that choice is something that should just, you know, be a monolith, that nothing can affect it, uh, that you have it or you don't and you do, so use it or you're bad. And what stands in the way of that is the field of neurology. We, we just know more now about how the brain makes choice. Were you offered treatment when you were incarcerated? Um, not really. Uh, I think if the people at the United States Disciplinary Barracks, that's the name of the command uh, at Fort Leavenworth, uh, Kansas, they would be very quick to tell you that they probably give more therapy than any other prison mm. in the federal system. And I, I'm sure that that's true. But because I was a short timer, uh, that wasn't going to happen. 
the average sentence at Leavenworth is 28 years. My sentence was a federal year, which is 10 and a half months. Uh, and so, you know, I was evaluated, but, but I was kind of put at the bottom of the pile because there were people who'd been there a lot longer and, you know, were uh, ahead of me in line. There were meetings, there were 12 step meetings, mm-hmm. but they wouldn't allow, uh, hospitals and institution committee from the local oh, AA, oh, uh, chapter come in. So they were the weirdest wow. meetings you wow. have ever seen. It really taught me a lot about the importance of H and I. I can remember they would say, you know, some people would say, well, my name's Kevin, I'm an alcoholic. And other people would say, well, my name's Joe, and I'm in discovery. In discovery? <laughs> in discovery of whether you were an alcoholic or not. And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, hey, look around you. <laughs> There's a guy who points a shotgun at you when you eat your Cheerios in the morning. How much more do you need to discover? Oh, my So it was, just, it was just kind of strange, and it really was an important lesson about how important H&I is. And I'll always be grateful to H&I people. What was it like when you first went in and in terms of detox? And you, I mean, your body is detoxing from opioid addiction. That's no easy situation. It, it would have been. I had actually, um, once everything kind of came crashing down, they, they basically told me to go home and call in every day until my court martial was ready. And in that time, I, I hung around with the other doctors in recovery in Orange County, and mm. they were very kind to me. And I went to NA and AA meetings. And I didn't have any more access to opioids. My one uh, attempt to get heroin in Santa Ana, California was quite the disaster. That's a story for another time. Um, but I discovered cocaine. And then I got to tell you, I never think about opioids. Cocaine, wow. you put that in front of me, I'd be in real trouble. So uh, thank goodness for my recovery. But um, so when I went into jail, I was kind of coming off of a Coke binge, and all I really wanted to do was eat and sleep. So it wasn't, it wasn't as bad as, as a person who would have to come in and detox cold turkey from opioids. Dr. Kevin McCauley is joining us tonight on Recovery Coast to Coast. He is going to be in Seattle on March 16th at a free presentation at the Seattle Public Library. You want to find out more information about that and free tickets, uh, as a matter of fact. You can go to brownpapertickets.com. Y- you know, Kevin, we've we made significant strides since certainly I came in this field in the mid-'70s, and the recovery movement is robust like never before, especially young people in recovery. What are the challenges that we as a field face now moving forward in terms of both treatment and recovery management? Yeah, well, I mean, I think the, the, the biggest thing that we're going to have trouble with right now is integrating um, what the federal government and what a lot of research says is the solution uh, to opioid addiction specifically. All addictions are important. Everyone's in the club, but this is the one that's rising above all the others because it really is an amazing and very uh, chilling public health crisis. The idea that the leading cause of death in young people is now prescription and now migrating to illicit opioids, that's very scary. So what the federal government is saying is we want all these people on on medication-assisted treatment. And there's lots of evidence to show that, especially when you measure it by, you know, life. I mean, the person is more likely to be able to fog a mirror uh, in a year if they're on something like, you know, buprenorphine or naltrexone, something like that. Um, But how do you integrate that with the wisdom that has been accumulated over the last nearly a century that it's always going to be more than just taking a medication? Recovery will always be more than getting a shot in your butt or putting a strip under your tongue. So it would be nice to be able to know how to integrate the two wisdoms, in other words, to be able to, you know, just like Dr. Silkworth was the Mm -hmm. very first, that's the very first thing you'll read in the big book. 
Um, but that was integrated with the wisdom of the old timers. And, and I, I think that that will be the challenge before us. Um, I have no fear, though, that we will get initial benefits and we should get them from MAT. And that's that's good. We, we, people should they deserve to have those benefits. Certainly, you know, it's better than dying. But eventually, we'll just kind of find ourselves right back at the same point, which is, okay, well, you know, what's the solution to living? I mean, what was the problem that was really driving the drug use in the first place? And that's, that's always going to take more than a medication. You talk about recovery management. How does addiction recovery management differ from or maybe is similar to recovery from other chronic diseases such as diabetes, asthma, COPD, and others? Right. So with those other conditions, we would call it disease management, right? Mm-hmm. Recovery management is the, is just the form of disease management for uh, for uh, people in recovery uh, from addiction. And so a lot of the same rules apply. Uh, and so one of the things you would want is to have this person have access to good treatment and then follow-up care after that. That's what's so important. Long-term, you know, uh, a connection uh, to that healthcare professional, um, having an addiction medicine specialist. You you said that I was an addiction specialist. That that's very kind of you. But to me, an addiction specialist is a person is a physician or a nurse practitioner who's certified by the American Society of Addiction Medicine or board certified by the American Board of Addiction Medicine. The equivalent for a, a physician's assistant, the equivalent for a nurse practitioner. Having that connection to healthcare is very important. Having connection to medications as they become important or uh, at any phase of the person's recovery. And then it comes down to things like housing. Housing is an extremely important health determinant. That's true for people with diabetes. That's true for people with COPD. That's certainly true for people with addiction. And so what what recovery management, what disease management allows us to do is kind of take five steps back at the the sort of 30,000-foot view of the problem and recognize that there are many different uh, resiliencies that have to be, uh, and resources that have to be accessible to everybody, not just one group or that, you know, this group or that group, but, but really everybody has a right to, to, to get into recovery. Where does accountability come into all of this? Well, I think, you know, um, it's, there, there are different levels. There's, there's certainly the accountability that comes with having a criminal conviction. Uh, there's the accountability that comes to, to our families. I think it becomes easier and easier to meet these accountabilities as the person gets more and more sobriety and recovery. Then, you know, I, I've always, people say, well, people ha- with addiction have to take personal responsibility. My feeling is that people do take personal responsibility to the exact extent that they know how to and are supported in doing so. And why would that be? Why would people take? Because it's fun. It's fun today. It's rewarding. It feels good to take personal responsibility. But very often, we look at personal responsibility through the lens, in my case, of white male privilege. Mm. And I wonder, gee, you know, what are all the ways that I'm insisting upon accountability to a person who has a severe comorbid mental illness or a person who's, who's not going to be able to get their treatment paid by the Navy? Uh, or by someone else, per, a person who doesn't have access to health insurance. Um, so I think, you know, accountability is one of those code words that I definitely believe in. We all do. But I would use it very sparingly <laughs> and with great forethought and humility, I would hope. And the importance of 12-step meetings? 
Well, I mean, they're, they saved my life. Uh, I think that uh, I, I was lucky in the sense that <laughs> that it was obvious that I had a problem. There was no no sort of, well, maybe I just, you know, maybe mm-hmm. I've got an abuse issue. No, I, I mean, I, I got hit so hard up front that I knew that, you know, I needed um, meetings. And, and those are really the only things that were out there. Now we're seeing a proliferation of mutual support groups. And I think to the extent that they work, They'll work because they have a lot of the same things that people in 12-step meetings uh, uh, have been doing. Uh, that you know, the, the number of peers in your in your immediate social network who still drink—that's a risk factor. If you can get it down to zero, then that's a big uh, resilience factor. Um, you know, being able to to cope with anger, not just you know diminish it, but be able to be more capable of dealing with all the negative. Uh, effective symptoms of early recovery. I think there are lots of different programs that could give that. What I like about 12 Steps is that they're ubiquitous. I, I went to church, uh, Christchurch, New Zealand not too long, long ago. I went to an AA meeting. It was very, very easy to find one. It's a little harder for smart recovery. It's a little harder for celebrate recovery or life ring, but I'm absolutely, you know, uh, uh, encouraging of the fact that those groups will, will, uh, grow over time. I think that's a good thing. Are young people more likely to accept a treatment strategy rather than older folks? And and what about senior citizens? I know th- there's a great uh, rise in the epidemic of, of young people in opioids, but we're also seeing more and more people who suffer from chronic pain. They're older people. Yeah. They start off with opioids. Then they can no longer afford them, and they move to the cheaper heroin. Yeah. Well, I mean, before the youth, uh, really before the opioid um uh, addiction and overdose epidemic took hold. That was actually the fastest growing group of people with, with substance use disorder was, mm-hmm. was the elderly. Uh, and, and it turns out that all three of these groups, they sort of have special needs. So young people are different from, from, you know, uh, adults and, and older adults are different from the other two. And so there is, I think, a, a good amount of research that supports that that these people do better in treatment that can meet their needs that might even, you know, uh, separate them out. I, there were a couple of old people in my treatment center and we, we thought they were great. So it's not an absolute. But I think uh, that that's um, that that's the challenge is to not not forget everybody else who also needs uh, help. And you're absolutely right. There's an ageism that that can uh, take hold where we just sort of give out these, you know, controlled substances because, well, you know, he's old and he deserves it. You know, right. I mean, just really crappy stuff. But we've all seen people who've gotten sober late in life yep. and and still had the benefits and and been able to to live out their life uh, feeling productive and useful and and they've they've saved many 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 lives. And I think everybody deserves that. Just because I'm old, I don't necessarily want to be cut off from the benefits and the joys of recovery. Dr. Kevin McCauley joining us tonight on Recovery Coast to Coast. What, what about family treatment and support? And, and what happens if a family doesn't want to participate? That's an interesting one. I mean, I, I certainly have uh, met a lot of families that, that uh, they just you know don't want to be involved. I, I think that this is an area that we have neglected, not necessarily because we're neglectful purposefully, but just because it's you know something we haven't focused on. Mm-hmm. When I made the second DVD, uh, I interviewed my psychiatrist, and, and we put his outtakes, all the outtakes of the interviews on our website, and he mentioned very carefully, you know, the families are just not taken care of. And they have a kind of PTSD uh, that's just as bad as the PTSD you see in the military, because you know that 
you know, the enemy wants to kill you, but it's it's another thing to be wounded in that way in your own home by someone who, who you love. Mm-hmm. And I found that was a very moving statement that Dr. Milner made in that interview. And I think that that's really the, the challenge is, is that more people, young people get into uh, recovery. That's going to be great, but we're going to find out that that there's a, a trail of people in their wake who still have very important needs. Uh, to the extent that a family doesn't want to be involved, I, I guess I can kind of understand that. There's only so much that you can take, and eventually you have to protect yourself. A lot of collateral and, damage. Right, right. Mm-hmm. So if a family says, you know what, I don't want to be part of this, I, you know, it's hard, it's hard uh, not to uh, at least empathize with what they're going through. Tell me about your two DVDs. You've got one called Pleasure Unwoven and the other Memo to Self, Sobriety with the Safety of Science. Yes, sir. So, you know, since I, I've been out of medicine and haven't really been able to do the things that a doctor can do, I've kind of tried to say, okay, well, you know, what can I do? And one of the things that was really shocking to me is how much the uh, research on addiction had grown, how much was known about addiction and recovery and how it just was not getting to the people who needed it. And so it frustrated me that there wasn't, you know, like a single film that a family could watch and understand, oh, that's why my loved one does that, or a person who needs recovery could watch and say, oh, that's why I'm going through this. That there wasn't a a film that could describe, you know, what it is that we do for all these high-level professionals, pilots, uh, doctors, nurses, lawyers. And so I decided to make them. I mean, I'm not a filmmaker. I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> These are garage productions at best. I, I think our cinematographer is a professional. The photography is very beautiful. His editing is very beautiful. But they're a little rough around the edges, but they get the job done. And so the first one was designed to kind of talk about the problem, what actually goes wrong in the brain, to try to make the argument for why we could consider addiction a disease. But then the second one was about, okay, well, what's the solution? You know, what are the things we know really predict recovery in the first years of, of, of sobriety? In other words, what, what does good recovery management look like? And so, you know, we've tried to keep those films as cheap as possible, as accessible as possible. Um, you can find the outtakes. Pretty much everything that's in the second one is on our, our website, which is www.protectingsobriety.com. Uh, and the idea is to just try to, I mean, every, this, this information belongs to everyone. And I wanted to try to make it as accessible as I could. Dr. Kevin McCauley is going to be in Seattle on March 16th, 7 o'clock at the Seattle Public Library downtown. His talk will be why addiction is a disease and why there's hope. It's free. And you can get tickets online at brownpapertickets.com. Presented by Northbound Treatment Services. You can find out more about Dr. Kevin McCauley at his website, drkevinmccauley.com, or protectsobriety.com. And he's got those two DVDs, Pleasure Unwoven and Memo to Self, Protecting Sobriety with the Science of Safety. I look forward to your visit in Seattle, and I thank you for your time today. Thank you, Neil. It was a real honor to be on your show. Great. Great to have you. The Bright Side of Addiction is Recovery. Pass it on. I'm Neil Scott. We're going to take a short time out back with more on the other side.